This is a Federal News Network podcast. Congress continues on its recess as House members and a third of the Senate focus on midterm elections. But there's plenty going on, including that yearly bugaboo, the debt limit. We get more now from Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. And the debt limit question seems to be coming up. Uh, Janet Yellen is being pulled into debates about all of this. Why the discussion, since it seems like they just settled it a few weeks ago? The debt limit was taken care of already during this Congress. But the issue is that it's going to rear its head again in sometime around the third quarter of next year is the estimate. Um, Unlike before, where they had suspended it for dates, this one is based on the dollar amount. And so um, whenever that dollar amount gets approached for how much debt you can have, that's where some issues will come up. Um, The issue here is related to what you talked about, the midterm elections that are coming up and what some people are seeing as the likelihood that Republicans take over one or both chambers of Congress. Um, When that's happened in the past, there's been a little bit more of a standoff over the debt limit um, with Republicans looking to a Democratic president and trying to extract some fiscal policy changes. Now, that is leading to some political discussion on the trail with what exactly would those be? What would you cut? What would the pressures be? Um, but that's leading, at least I think, some discussion or thinking at least about whether or not you do the debt limit sooner rather than later so that it's not hanging out over their head. But at the moment, nothing's been scheduled and, and you know there's no real pressure to do something until next year at this rate. Yes, the president was touting the fact that the deficits had dropped in the last fiscal year to only $1.4 trillion. But if you read the projections of the Congressional Budget Office, they're going to go right back up again. And so this question could come even a little sooner than that, depending on the fiscal trends. Right, right. And that's why it's an estimated date, right? You have to to kind of see what's coming in and going out and what may change even with some legislation passed in the lame duck session, because we do expect a lot of things to move there. Whether that moves the needle directly or not, we'll have to see. But this is going to be a big question what to do. And when you do have divided government, a lot of times the budget is where some of these things really happen, because you do have action-forcing deadlines like the debt limit and like the September 30th expiration of funding next year, where that gives people leverage to maybe have these kind of discussions and debates, as we saw back in 2011 when you know then-Speaker Boehner and then-President Obama tried to work something out, and that also led to the Budget Control Act and sequestration and all the, the things that loomed over the government for quite a while there, as well as the spending caps that followed. So um, you know, a lot can happen as a result of this debate and, and this negotiation process. And in the meantime, there is money to be spent on infrastructure, and so therefore the White House Permit Office has been bulking up. This is something Bloomberg has been reporting on. Congress did recess without any action on the idea of federal permitting changing statutorily that Joe Manchin had maybe hoped for, giving his assent to some other spending. So what does it mean that the White House Permit Office is bulking up? Well, we've had, you know, a couple of big laws in the infrastructure space. Obviously, in in 2021, we had the bipartisan infrastructure law that reauthorized highway programs and also had a lot of funding for other types of infrastructure. And then the Healthcare tax and climate change package that was passed in August and signed into law did increase the amount of money available to this federal permitting council. I think it went from 10 million to you know, 350 million, so pretty big um, increase in its budget. And so they're working through how to how to dole out that money, how to use that money effectively to, to try and help people out. That's something that Stephen Lee and our environment team did write about. Um, and so to me, you know, that's that's an example of one of these laws getting passed and getting a lot of fun 
funding to work. Um, obviously, another agency that got a big funding boost in that same law was the IRS, which is still working through all the money that it got for enforcement activities, modernization. Um, that's been something that's come up a lot on the campaign trail um, and probably would be revisited by Republicans should they take over. So we are seeing the effects of this money flowing through the federal coffers um, with the, the bulking up in the, the staffing and everything. All right. We're speaking with Lauren Duggan, Deputy News Director of Bloomberg Government. CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, as you've reported, as Federal News Network has reported, came out with its guidelines or performance goals, they call them, for industry. There's not a lot of new ground here in what they're asking industry to do, but it seems to be maybe leading up to either statutory or regulatory action. What has Bloomberg found about this? Yeah, I mean, we we are digesting the the guidance that came out yesterday, obviously, and um, our reporters, a couple of them, worked to talk to different industry groups and see how they were feeling. Uh, um, a lot of these rules, or this in particular, was rewritten based on some of the industry feedback before. But that's one of the things that can be successful when government and the private sector works together on this. But um, infrastructure and um, cybersecurity issues have been at the forefront of Congress. We saw some action earlier this year on. I think it was this year on some cybersecurity changes and there's other things that they may work on. I know FedRAMP authorization is still looming. Um, there's been some bills passed in both chambers, but no final resolution on that. So I would expect more action on cybersecurity. That's an area where there can be bipartisanship. We talk a lot about um, usually the more partisan issues here, but certainly, you know, committees, even like the Oversight and Reform Committee or Government Affairs Committee over in the Senate will be looking at this and trying to do more in the cybersecurity space, both at the government uh, level and, and all the systems there, but then as it interacts with the private sector. So um, I, I, I would expect more there oversight of what's already come and, and maybe some tweaks in legislation to come. And while we have you, just review for us the rest of the time that is there for the recess and the lame duck. What does that schedule look like and what can we expect in Congress again? I would expect a busy lame duck session, especially if the Republicans take over one of the chambers, the Democrats with the keys to all three, the, the House, the Senate and the White House will try to get through what they can before the end of the year. Two big projects. One is omnibus spending or something to do with government funding before the December 16th expiration of the continuing resolution. The second is the National Defense Authorization Act, which is a must-pass bill. More than six decades they've been doing it. They're not going to stop now. Um, and both of those bills would become attractive vehicles for other things they want to do, whether it's same-sex marriage or changes to, to other um, laws that they've talked about, some partisan, some bipartisan. Uh, maybe we'll see the debt limit rear its head in these discussions as well. But between November 14th, which is um, the Monday after the election, and January 3rd, when the Congress has to end, I would expect a lot of activity, hopefully not right up until Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. But um, there's a lot to do, and I wouldn't rule that out, given all they have to do. Lauren Duggan is Deputy News Director of Bloomberg Government. As always, thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. 
Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out, there's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, so not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day jobs. And he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. 
And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say it's sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in this in this sense. Looking back, what what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? 
You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Whether it's Baker's Simple Truth Turkey or Mac and Cheese with Murray's English Cheddar or pie made with fresh Cosmic Crisp apples, there are many dishes we look forward to sharing during the holidays. And Baker's has all the fresh ingredients you need to turn today's holidays into tomorrow's memories. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Get more ways to save at the Buy 5 or More Save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone.